0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. A few nights ago, I talked about um, effort and about the different approaches that teachers have or... Uh, different strategies of of practice that you might read about and uh, wanted to follow up a little bit on that and uh, explore particularly working with thoughts and then more broadly um, knowing getting a sense of the best strategy or the best way to work with any situation how do you know the right one for you? <clears throat> sometimes you might have a a sense that something is going on and uh, you're looking forward to an interview so you can get the right answer. What is what is the Buddhist teaching on this? It's sometimes uh, A question that comes, I kind of laugh on it when somebody asks me, what is the Buddhist view on political action or uh, something, uh, working with computers or something that I can't talk for the Buddha. I can give you a sense of my understanding of what the teachings point to but um, we all have our own take on how the teachings are uh, what the teachings are trying to say. There are some basic principles and truths underlying them all, but if you go to a number of different teachers with something that's happening for you, you might get a number of different answers on how to work with with things. in addition to the one about heroic effort or simple and easy, but there's lots of different strategies that one can employ in any particular situation. And the Buddha realized this, and he also had different strategies, different um, ways of working with a situation. If one thing doesn't work, then you might try this or try this. And uh, particularly I wanted to explore a bit about what he uh, recommended as far as working with troublesome thoughts, distracting thoughts, as a way of um, illustrating this point. The Buddha realized that most people weren't like him. Most people believe their thoughts, get lost in their thoughts. and he saw that this is a very sticky, thorny predicament that we're in as we believe our thoughts, taking them to be real, taking them to be mine, identifying with them. It was so obvious to him, but it's not so obvious to us when we're in the middle of it, as I'm sure you've seen. Because there's this tendency of mind to... Um, to have what's called papancha, proliferation of thoughts, how one thought can give rise to another thought and another, and then there's a whole flowering of activity and story that just had its seed in one particular thought passing through. I came across a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon around this, where Calvin is saying, uh, in the first frame, here I am happy and content. The next frame, but not euphoric. (laughs) The next frame, so now I'm no longer content. I'm unhappy. My day is ruined. And the last frame, I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. If we could only remember that, to stop thinking while we're ahead, it would be much simpler. Somebody crosses your field of vision and looks at you, or you think they look at you. They might be looking at an animal behind you, you know, and it can stir the whole mind up for hours. Oh, do they like me? They don't like me. Who do they think they are? And on and on. You know, And when we're in that very sensitive space, it just reverberates around and around somebody is doing the loving kindness meditation and talking about cultivating an open loving heart and you feel a little bit tight or cold or unloving and then it's I can't do this meta stuff yeah. I wasn't loved when I was a child that's why you know, I'm not lovable I know I'm not lovable Nobody will ever love me, you know, just from a few moments of, well, I'm not quite there with the loving-kindness. That's how Papancha works. It gets this whole story going, and we believe it. So the Buddha realized this, and he had some recommendations for working with troublesome thoughts, and there's one particular discourse called the, the Discourse on the Removal of Distracting Thoughts. And I should should say that the first approach, which is not mentioned here, but which is a given underlying the whole process, is to be mindful of thoughts. Because in the moment you see them as thought, no problem. In the moment you see they're just creation of mind, then you see they're as real as you make them or as empty as you make them. Joseph Goldstein has a wonderful suggestion. He says, if you're bothered by your thoughts, just try imagining they're coming from the person behind you. You That kind of takes the whole personality and identification out of it. But sometimes we forget, and we get caught, and it seems so real. So the Buddha had some other suggested techniques. This is too loud. True. He says, uh, when a practitioner is giving attention to some sign, some, some sense impingement, and owing to that sign there arise in the practitioner unwholesome thoughts connected with desire or with aversion or with delusion, then they should give attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome. When giving attention to that other sign connected with what is wholesome, then the unwholesome thoughts are abandoned and subside. He gives an image. Just as a skilled carpenter or his apprentice might knock out, remove, and extract a coarse peg by means of a fine one, so too when giving attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome, the mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. What does that mean, to, to move from what is unwholesome to what is wholesome? Really, he's talking about substituting wholesome thoughts for the confusing ones. And if you're familiar with the the hindrances and there's various antidotes for all the hindrances reflections when the mindfulness isn't strong enough that you can use for instance with desire to reflect on impermanence this thing that you want so much what is it going to feel like or will it have the same enthralling enchanting quality six months from now or five years from now whatever it is whether it's a car or a person whatever it changes so that's a skillful reflection on something that on a wholesome thought reflecting on impermanence if you have a lot of doubt the antidote to doubt is faith whether it's taking refuge in the Buddha or some inspiring figure or somehow uh, reflecting on people who believe in you and see what they see in you to get some faith is very skillful antidote to that doubt aversion anger that's an obvious one the antidote when the mindfulness isn't strong enough is loving kindness just generating it for yourself or somebody who opens your heart, not necessarily the the person who's really difficult for you unless you're at that point in practice where you've generated enough loving-kindness for yourself or for others, because that's kind of advanced metta. We're working our way up to that. But the idea of that substitution is very, very skillful. But that might not do the trick. So he has another tactic, he says if while giving attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome, that is the first suggestion, there still arise unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with aversion, delusion, then the person should examine the danger in those thoughts like this. These thoughts are unwholesome, they result in suffering and when examining the danger in those thoughts then the these unwholesome thoughts may subside just and this is a graphic example just as a man or a woman young youthful and fond of ornaments would be horrified humiliated and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung around his or her neck <laughs> So too, when examining the danger in those thoughts, oh, this is unpleasant. Do I want to go here? Basically, the mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. You know the uh, uh, the popular phrase making the rounds these days in the last couple of years is "Don't even go there." You know, it's basically what the Buddha suggested 2,500 years ago. Don't go there. How can we keep from, from going there? One way, again, if the mindfulness isn't strong enough, but we realize there's this persistent pattern happening again and again and again, is to see the pattern for what it is. To see, oh, this is a place I've gone to 78 times today you know do I want to go here again and sometimes giving it a name just kind of framing the whole train of thought can be helpful to give yourself the choice do I want to go here or not whether it's relationship thoughts or work thoughts or victim thoughts or whatever thoughts they are having that way to hold it might give you some pause to say, oh, I've gone there before, I don't need to go there. So that's the second method. Third one that he suggests, in case that one doesn't work, if while examining the danger in those thoughts, that is using that technique, there still arise unwholesome thoughts, then the person should try to forget those thoughts and should not give attention to them. When trying to forget those thoughts and not giving attention to them, then these unwholesome thoughts may subside and be abandoned. With the abandoning, the mind becomes steadied internally and quieted. Just as a man with good eyes... Who did not want to see forms that had come within range of sight would either shut his eyes or look away, so too when a practitioner tries to forget those thoughts and not give attention to them, the mind may become steadied, internally quieted, and concentrated. This is sometimes called forgetfulness and inattention. Now you might say, wow, the Buddha talking about not paying attention, how cool. This is different. What he's talking about is you have the option not to be with what is predominant if you find yourself struggling, getting confused by it, or somehow getting, getting caught and identified with it. Although the, the general suggestion is, be with what is. Be mindful. You know, just what is offered in this moment. It's not always the most helpful instruction. If you are there dealing with a whole lot of body pain, after a while the mind can get quite fatigued staying with it. Oh God, because there's as it gets fatigued and and uh, and withered then it's so easy to get into the story around it or you get discouraged with your practice. Same thing with emotions, strong emotions. If you've been hanging in there with fear or rage or whatever the the strong emotion, after a while it's hard to get some space around it and just see it clearly and you get caught. That can be a point where you move to something completely different. You don't have to stay with it. In the in either instance, for instance, going up to sounds as a way to get some space in the mind or just feeling your body sitting here knowing that you're alive. You're paying attention but you're not paying attention to that which was confusing. It's different from the first technique because the first one is more of a substitute, some kind of reflection for the unwholesomeness. This is moving your attention to something else that's going on and just letting that be in the background. So a third strategy. But doesn't always work, so he has a fourth. Two more to go. If, while trying to forget those thoughts and not giving attention to them, there still arise unwholesome thoughts, then the practitioner should give attention to to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts. When when he gives attention to stilling the thought formation, the mind becomes steadied, internally quieted, etc., Just as a man walking fast might consider, Why am I walking fast? What if I walk slowly? And he would walk slowly. Then he might consider, Why am I walking slowly? What if I stand? And then he would stand. Then he might consider, Why am I standing? What if I sit? And he would sit. Then he might consider, Why am I sitting? What if I lie down? (laughs) Sounds good, huh? And he would lie down. By doing so, he would substitute for each grosser posture one that was subtler. So, too, when a practitioner gives attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts, the mind becomes steadied internally, etc., quieted, concentrated. Okay, so what does this mean? I've seen actually two different explanations of, of this. One is as that uh, that illustration points out, to just relax and soften and just get some space. You know, going out in nature if it's not pouring out, or somehow to uh, to get some space, have a cup of tea, or like we've talked about when the effort is is too tense. Another way, stilling the thought formations, is getting to the root, the underlying root of those thoughts. Now, what that can mean is, for instance, if you have a pattern of thought over and over, it can be helpful to drop one level underneath the thought and get in touch with the feeling that's going on there. Because when we have repetitive thought patterns, it's like there's an emotion underneath that's not being contacted. And it's quite extraordinary, as uh, I'm sure many of you know, what happens when you say, okay, let's feel what's going on underneath here. And in that exploration, when you're willing, when you invite the feeling and you're willing to explore it, Ah, it's like scratching the itch, you know. Ah, yes, that's what I'm feeling. And in that welcoming it, you're not adding on a layer of aversion, and you start to discover the source of those thoughts that are, that's the wellspring out of which they're they're coming out of. And as you get in touch with that source, you also see the ephemeral nature of that underlying feeling. And it's not uncommon to feel anger and then as you go into it then get in touch with hurt or with sadness or with cal- then with calm then with joy that the anger is over or it you know, just keeps on changing and changing and changing. So this is another tack to get underneath to see where those thoughts come from. Then there's the the final suggestion, which I, well I'll just go ahead and read it. If, while giving attention to stilling the thought formations of those thoughts, there still arise these unwholesome thoughts, then with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, the practitioner should beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. (laughs) Now you have to realize the Buddha was from the warrior caste. (laughs) When with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, beats down, constrains, and crushes mind with mind, the unwholesome thoughts may subside. (laughs) And then there is a... Uh, He gives an example, just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him and crush him, so too with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, the practitioner can do the same. Constrain, crush mind with mind, and the mind becomes steadied internally, quieted and concentrated. Now, I read that with a little caution. You can't do this with aversion. In a way, the way I understand it is having a firm sense that says, no, this is enough. And sometimes this can work, but from what I've seen, and many people that I've worked with over the years, If you have aversion to that thought and say, I hate this thought, please stop, get away, all you do is compound it with more thought. But if you have a strong intention, a strong will that just says no, you know, just say no, just says no, sometimes it can work. So that's another possible course of action. So, I give these as both uh, an illustration of different ways to work with thoughts, but there's another teaching in here that I want to point to. What is the teaching? There's no one way or formula to do it. And so when you have that question, am I doing it right? What would the teachers say, uh, that can get very confusing. And one of the things that I've appreciated so much about the Buddha is the invitation and the challenge to see for ourselves what's true. The famous Kalama Sutta where He's asked, who should we believe? All these great teachers come in saying that they know the truth. And he says, In situations of uncertainty, doubts surely arise. You should decide, Kalamas, not by what you have heard, not by following convention, not by assuming it is so, not by relying on the texts, not because of reasoning, not because of logic, not by thinking about explanations, not by acquiescing to the views that you prefer, not because it appears likely, and certainly not out of respect for a teacher. When you would know kalamas for yourselves that these things are healthy, these things when entered upon and undertaken incline toward welfare and happiness, then having come to them you should stay with them, cultivate them. Part of this practice, I see, is more and more becoming our own authority And many of the teachers point to the same thing. Although they might be familiar with the territory, and it's very, very helpful to have a guide. Ultimately, the task is to find our own inner wisdom. If you read Living Buddhist Masters, or what's now called Living Dharma uh, by Jack, uh, where 13 different approaches to Vipassana are given, after a while, you get a sense. Oh, there's a few different ways to do this, and it's interesting. Uh, it's wonderful being part of the teacher collective here at Spirit Rock as we get together and uh, talk about Dharma points. It's uh, either on, in our uh, council meetings or after a Dharma talk, and there's a real richness to looking at different perspectives on things. And it, it reminds me of my the image I have of. Uh, old uh, Jewish rabbis in the old country debating the Talmud you know that there's there's a real fascination and exploration that sees oh many different ways to understand let's see what you what you say about that so who to turn to and trust it's yourself now I want to put this out with some caution in the message this this can be a dangerous message when you've been if you have a rebellious streak and you've been saying all along yeah I want to do my thing here um, there's a, it's not as simple as that actually it's a very challenging instruction and I, I again want to stress to use the the assistance or the the support, the guidance of teachers well that it's helpful to trust somebody and then check it out for yourself and see if it works or not. But you're going to listen to yourself anyway. I mean we usually do ultimately, unfortunately we're listening to the things that come through that confuse us, like you're no good, or you can't do this, or we're listening to our thoughts and our messages all the time anyway, you might as well become a skilled listener of all the messages that come through so you can sort out the ones that really are supportive of you. The notion of trusting myself actually frightened me, you know, because I didn't have confidence that I would do the right thing. I remember one time on retreat when uh, I said, you know, I don't know if I can trust myself. I can get lazy sometimes, or I can get um, self-righteous, or think I know how it is. And I was encouraged not so much to trust myself, but just trust in the awareness, trust in the purity of the awareness without taking credit for having the right answer. What can be called trusting in your Buddha knowing. When we take refuge in the Dharma, sorry, when we take refuge in the Buddha, it's not just taking refuge in that figure that lived, that person who lived 2,500 years ago. We're taking refuge in that capacity that we have to truly understand, to truly wake up. And it's in all of us. It's different from James knowing. If I end up congratulating myself on how smart I am, that's kind of missing the point. All that does is get into more reification of self. But you know when you've had those moments of real insight where something really connects and you have this experience of, aha, oh, look at that. It's not that you knew all along, it's that you are opening up to something in a fresh way that says, oh, look at that. And it's like the universe, the Dharma has revealed something to you that becomes obvious once you see it. So it's really letting go of you knowing what can be called freedom from the known, as Krishnamurti calls it, into connecting with a deeper sense, letting that wisdom emerge through you. Very different from analytical thinking. This is uh, Ajahn Sumedho. He says... uh, Feeling there is the divine within us. For reflection of divinity, we have the beautiful selfless qualities that can manifest through the human form when there is no self. When you're not caught in ignorance, when there's all that process of self-view finally ceases, then the divinity is obvious then kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, peace of mind are not something that we have to get, but something that manifests through these forms. So it's really getting out of the way to see the wisdom and the understanding and the compassion that's been in there all along. Michelangelo when someone lavished praise on him for his skill in creating the beautiful masterpiece david brushed aside the compliment by saying the man was already in the stone i merely removed all the pieces of rock that kept him from being seen and in the same way in the same way it's allowing that wisdom and that beauty to emerge when they're not obscured by our identification with knowing, with knowing how it is. So how do we get in touch with this natural state of wisdom and love that's in here all along? Well, the first strategy that we're practicing here is mindfulness. That, in itself, is a moment when we're not identified with experience. And it's quite extraordinary. This is called insight meditation, how just the practice of mindfulness very often is what leads to that understanding and that wisdom to to emerge. So that's the primary strategy. Another aspect is learning to listen really skillfully inside. Like I said, uh, we listen to most of the stuff that comes through and believe them. If we can be more discriminating, more discerning, so we can sense where this thought is coming from. Is this a thought that serves or not? Uh, then we can start to connect with that deeper wisdom, that deeper understanding. You know in uh, in right speech there's usually the, uh, it's usually summed up in the phrase uh, saying what's truthful and what's useful. Well in the same way we can have that listening, listening to what is truthful and what is useful. One way that I have found helpful to discriminate between the various thoughts to the ones that are useful is to listen to the tone that the thought comes in listen to the energy that it's writing a lot of thoughts are coming through either with a a finger wagging at us now you really blew it that time where you better get it together or with a grasping, you really need this, you really want this, you better watch out. And there's that energy of agitation or contraction that um, it's not so good to trust. Other thoughts are coming through with a deep sense of inner strength and wholeness and support the ones that come through, and we all have it, that say, this feels right. No, this doesn't feel right. And to start to, to listen to those, when we can discriminate between the tones, we can give energy to the ones that really support us. From that place that you can call your Buddha nature, or the kingdom of God within, or the still small voice within there's a place in us that knows your bodhicitta, the seed of awakening and the more you learn to listen to it and hear it the more access you have to it another way to get a sense of skillful listening is feeling your body A lot of times there's a contraction or an agitation when The message is just coming from old tapes or confusion. That's very different from a sense of ease and connection and rightness when there's that Buddha knowing come through. Something that is very important if we're going to act on our thoughts, the ones that come through particularly in the in this retreat setting but even as well for outside this is a a practice a training ground for it is getting in touch with what our higher purpose is what's called clear comprehension of purpose that when we are clear like we did at the beginning of the retreat on our intention and clear that whether our intention is to open our hearts or to wake up or to be as sincere as possible or to uh, come to the end of suffering, whatever the words are that, uh, that work for you, your highest purpose, then whatever you do can be held in that vessel, can be used, that guideline can be used as an index of whether or not this is a thought to act on for instance if you're feeling quite exhausted and you might have the idea ah, time to just rest if you check against that guideline and say is this going to be supportive of my practice am I doing this to avoid or am I doing this because this is the most skillful thing I can think of right now to support my my Dharma practice, then trust it. And when what comes through is very wholesome, you know it, you can feel it, there's a rightness to it. And the Buddha suggests you feel the wholesomeness of that that thought, of that energy as it comes through. Delights the heart, he says, you gain inspiration in the Dhamma when you hear your, the wholesomeness, the rightness of, of, your, of your thoughts. So, being present for it, learning to listen carefully, learning to feel the energy in your body and in your mind, and then acting on it as best you can. And if you realize, okay, time to change, then being flexible to do that. Because all you can go by is the present moment as well as it presents itself to you. It's very tricky, though. You have to be very careful with thoughts. Identification is just one one moment away. And I saw this on a retreat I did a a couple of years ago when I was... uh, I was given the instruction to notice any way that I was creating a sense of self and I was getting really inspired by that instruction, oh yeah let's take a look at sense of self and I was was really uh, having a lot of energy for practice and this guy on this retreat who was kind of a bull in a china shop kind of yogi, kind of clumping through as I was being very, very meticulous in my, in my walking down in the, the, lower, the lower hall, comes through and he's scribbling notes about how he, what his meditation is, because that was a, a practice that some people were doing, keeping their, the record of their practice. And here he was clumping through and keeping notes, and the thought came to me, well, I sure have a lot less sense of self than he has. You know? <laughs> boom, there it was. You know, In just one moment, you can get snagged again. So to be really uh, watchful, and it's a continual inquiry. So the Buddha, this open-handed invitation to discover the truth for ourselves, you know, in the chants at the end of, uh, of the evening, one of the chants uh, that we do, he says, Ehi pasiko, o this Ehi pasiko, says, come see for yourself, come see the truth for yourself. This is both the good news and the bad news. The good news, the bad news is um, you gotta nobody can do it for you, but the good news is you don't need to wait for anybody to do it for you. It is an open-handed invitation and a real demanding challenge for you to be as honest as you can in your inner listening and trust that Buddha knowing. And it takes courage to look that deeply and that honestly. And sometimes it seems that when you're willing to go that deeply, you see all the things that get in the way of, of your knowing. But if you have the courage to stay with it, that deeper understanding is is waiting to be uncovered. And once you you get a glimpse and you get a connection with that deep sense of wisdom and you start trusting in it then you have faith that it's there and no one can take that away from you that's what's called verified faith not relying on anybody outside yourself and that's one of the beauties of the old student retreats because just about everybody here has seen for themselves that the practice really works you don't have to have anybody convince you or persuade you it really works and you know that to be true and to trust that more and more what you know to be true is a great fuel for practice the Buddha's Last words. Therefore, Ananda, be a lamp unto yourselves. Be a refuge to yourselves. Take to yourselves no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone beside yourselves. And those, Ananda, who either now or after I am dead shall be a lamp unto themselves, shall take to themselves no external refuge, but hold fast to the truth as their lamp. And holding fast to the truth as their refuge shall not look for refuge to anyone besides themselves. It is they who shall reach the very topmost height, but they must be anxious to learn. Can you trust in yourself that way? Try it. Listen very carefully inside. Be very honest with what you hear and have the the confidence to, to act on it. So let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.